Family. Simple and beautiful. Family. Hard. Family. Sometimes confusing. Family often busy and complicated. Family. It takes a lot of work and compromise. Family. Family matters. You know, I, I got to admit that uh, that was probably the first time I ever sang I Surrender All right before I preached a message. Uh, usually it's something I, uh, that, that is sung after a sermon is over where you're giving people the opportunity and, and the time to, to respond. And this week as Jordan and I were sitting down to plan out the worship set, I really felt led by God that, hey, you know what? We need to sing I Surrender All actually before uh, the message uh, because family matters. And because surrender, surrender is the high-octane fuel that drives the engine of the family. Uh, surrendering to, to what God and his word says about the family, to what God and his word says about your family, about what this book right here says about wives and husbands and parents and children and brothers and sisters, what, what this book says about how we are to behave and how we are to operate in the family. Surrendering to God, surrendering all, surrendering all our ways, all our thoughts, all our opinions, all our ideas about family to this book. And, and surrendering to God's way of, of mutual submission. As Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Surrendering ourselves and becoming a, a servant in our family where we put the needs of those in our family above the needs of ourselves. Where we ask the question, what can I do to help? And, and surrendering by, by saying, yes, I will make every effort to put those seven guaranteed to work and have a positive impact on my family ingredients like acceptance, attention, appreciation, adjustment affection, amnesty, and Almighty God. Surrendering by heeding and learning from Sanson's family about the, the do's and don'ts of finding our soulmate. Uh, surrendering and embracing the high value that God places on singleness as something that, that is good, that, that, that is a gift, and, and that powerfully paints a picture of the gospel in a very unique way for the glory of God. And finally, surrendering in the midst of our real problems, like Hannah did, by crying out to God, recognizing in the midst of the storm, are you in one? In the midst of the storm that, that we can't, but that God can. And by trusting, really trusting, ruthlessly trusting in, in God's provision in the midst of the storm and fulfilling our, our promises and by exploding in praise to and for our God, this, this God who, who loves us, this God who cares about us, uh, this God who in the, the midst of the storm walks with us, this God who the waves and the wind still know his name. Brothers and sisters, when we surrender, when you surrender to God and to his word, you win. It's a win for you, and it's a win for your family. Get it? Good. And now this morning, May 21st, 2017, we're going to look at another biblical family, Jacob's family, as we unpack a conversation called, When Our Marriage Isn't Working. And hey, just in case you're wondering whether or not you need to pay attention, you're wondering who needs to lean into the word this morning, you know, 
uh, just raise your hand if you're married, would like to get married, or you know someone who is married, all right? Okay, so I think that's everybody, right? Everybody. And, and as Jesus said in Luke 8, I read that this morning, I'm catching up on my faith because I'm here and reading. Jesus said this, so pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away. So pay attention to how you listen this morning. And a, a few things I, I, I want to point out before we pray into this conversation. Number one, though, though I'm not an expert in marriage, I, I do get marriage. You know, I, I was married 16 years to my, my first wife, Judy, before she won her battle here on earth and, and went home after a fight with cancer. And Laurie and I have been married for for over 20 plus years. So, you know, I, I get married. It's not perfect, but I get it. I understand. I'm, I'm in it with you. And number two, I, I also recognize that, like I said at the beginning of the series, when we talk about family and family issues, that, that a lot of emotions come with it, right? When you talk about marriage, you talk about relationships, right? A lot of different emotions come with it. And I want you to know that I understand and that I, and that I recognize that. So if you would... Uh, Bow your hearts and minds and pray with me. Uh, God, we love you and we sang it. We said we would surrender all. And all means all, God. All our thoughts, all our ways, all our opinions, all our attitudes, all our whatevers. God, I pray we just surrender it all, put it to the side, and that we trust, Lord, that you have something for us today. Lord, no matter who we are, anytime your word is open up and your spirit is moving in this place, we can encounter you in a new and fresh way. And God, I pray for open hearts. I pray that people will pay attention to how they hear. I pray that your word will find good soil that's not choked out by the craziness of this world. And God, I'm so happy that my confidence does not rest on me, but on your living and active word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this. Family Matters, week five, Jacob's family, when your marriage isn't working. Now, in Genesis 29, we, it, we, there's this fascinating love story, and it starts off normal enough. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is in love with this young woman named Rachel. But this is pretty much where normal ends in this story, and the soap opera twists kind of begin. Genesis 29, starting at verse 16, says... Now Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, and Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. So Jacob was in love with who? He's in love with, with Rachel. Jacob was in love with Rachel, verse 18, and said, I'll work for you seven years and return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Man, he really loves her, doesn't he? I mean, he works out a deal with their dad where he'll work for seven years in exchange for the opportunity to marry Rachel, right? And that's awesome. I mean, that, that is a pretty solid storyline for the Lifetime Movie Network, right? I mean, that would make a good one. Now, we also read in this passage that Laban has an, he has an older daughter named Leah. And we don't know much about her, but the Bible describes her and says that she has weak eyes. Again, Rachel is lovely and form and beautiful, and Leah has weak eyes. Now, commentators say that this term weak eyes is actually meant to be a compliment. Um, it meant she has nice eyes, she has delicate eyes, but let's be honest, if, 
If you got set up on a blind date with someone and he asked your friend who set the date up, what do they look like? And they said, well, they have weak eyes. Uh, you'd be thinking I'm maybe in trouble, right? Just saying. And by the way, the first time Laura and I went on the date, she asked her friends, hey, what does Steve look like? And they said, Steve has weak eyes. <laughs> and again, she's described as having weak eyes, and that's all we know about her. But Jacob's in love with Rachel, lovely in form and beauty. He works seven years so he can marry her. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh, so romantic, you know. I mean, we get that, right? There's this thing that comes, there's this irrational side of love. Yeah, I know it was 2,555 days, but because I love you so much, it only seemed like two or three days. And you know what, Rach? I don't even want to close my eyes because I miss you, babe. And I don't want to miss a thing, right? That irrational side of love. In verse 21, Jacob, he served the seven years. And so he says to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. Okay, not nearly as romantic, right? But hey, let's go easy on the guy. It was seven years. That's a very long engagement. You go down to verse 22, and here's where this huge twist begins to happen in the story. So Laban brought together, all the pe- brought together all the people of the palace and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And skip down to verse 25. It says, when morning came, there was Leah. Now talk about a surprise. Verse 25. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? <laughs> I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Deceive me. Yet he wakes up expecting Rachel, but when he rolls over in the bed, he finds that it's Leah in bed beside him. Needless to say, he's very upset, very disappointed, kind of ticked off at his uncle. Now, if you're me, you're thinking, like, how did he not know? I mean, how's this even possible? Especially after the hundreds of photos of the wedding party right after the wedding. Oh, there's no cameras back then. All right. Well, consider factors. Likely at this feast, Laban got Jacob very drunk. And perhaps after drinking enough, Leah with weak eyes looked a lot like Rachel, who was lovely in form and beauty. Not only that, there was no electricity, so it was dark. And she probably had a veil, a very thick veil, that, that she would have been wearing in those days. Bottom line, we don't really know how it happened, but it did happen. He thinks he's marrying Rachel but he ends up marrying Leah. Now, I encourage you to go home and read the rest of the story. Don't read it now, but when you go home, read the rest of the message and see what's there. But there's some interesting twists in the story, and we find a little bit later on that he eventually does marry Rachel after another seven years of working for his uncle. And the whole thing turns into this huge mess. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about the feeling Jacob had when he woke up in the morning and realized that they married the wrong person. You know, I was thinking that we could do like a a daytime TV show on this, right? And maybe we could call it Surprise Morning Makeovers. Or maybe your sister's hot, but you're not, right? (laughs) But this is the one I think would really get people's attention would be, I married the wrong person. And, And while Jacob's story's... Seems hard to believe, a little crazy and insane. I've seen this take place many 
times. Not literally. But I've talked to many couples who get married and not too far into it, they start to think that maybe they married the wrong person. I mean, the marriage isn't all what they thought it would be. Now, my studies for this message, I came across a letter that a daughter wrote to her mom, and this daughter was in that exact situation. Dear mom, I'm trying hard to understand what's happened to my marriage. What I thought was a sure thing has fallen apart. I'm starting to wonder if this man is the man I was meant to marry. Maybe I miss God's will. Being married isn't all what I thought it would be. I, I, I know that a lot of people have problems, but I was sure things were going to be different for us. Before we got married, it seemed like we had so much in common. But now it doesn't seem like we agree on anything. Mom, I feel ripped off. He feels the same way. Last night he told me that he feels like he's the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. We're both bitter, angry, and frustrated. Do you think that maybe the person God wanted me to marry is still out there somewhere? I'm constantly comparing him to others. I, I don't know, maybe I should divorce and start searching again for my true soulmate. All I know is that I'm deeply disappointed in my marriage. I don't know what to do, but I know I can't live like this any longer. Your daughter. I, I don't know, maybe you can relate to that a little bit this morning. Maybe your marriage hasn't turned out the way that you thought it would. Maybe you feel like the victim of a, a bait and switch scam. I mean, maybe you feel a little bit like Jacob when he woke up and said, this isn't the person that I agreed to marry. Bottom line, what you got isn't what you signed up for. And listen, if your marriage isn't on the rocks, I wonder if some in this room have just settled. Have settled for far less than this Incredible, life-changing, and life-completing relationship that God wants you to have. So the next few moments, I, I, I want to talk about how we end up being disappointed and disillusioned in our marriage. And then we end talking about maybe what we can do about it. And listen, I'm convinced that most people start off with high hopes. I mean, they believe that they found the right person, that they're going to like Snow White and Prince Charming, they are going to live happily ever after. But then one day they start wondering, is this the person I was meant to marry? In fact, there was a survey done by the Los Angeles Times of 2,000 adults, and they're asked this question, what is your main goal in life? And the overwhelming answer was to have a happy marriage. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that that was the, that that was the goal of of every bride and groom, of every wedding I've ever attended or officiated. I bet that's the goal of every married person in here, right? To, to, that's married, to, to live happily ever after from this day forward. And if that's what people want, a happily forever marriage, then why is there so much disappointment? Why, why do so many marriages not turn out the way people want them to go? And why do so many marriages either end in divorce or end in just hopelessness and futility? Just gut it out till you die. Well, I want to share some factors that lead to disappointment in marriage. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to how you hear. Uh, the first is unrealistic expectations. Now, I don't know of any other area in life where we set ourselves up for higher expectations than in marriage. 
I mean, we buy into the Hollywood version of love and romance, and we are just so sure, again, that we're going to live happily ever after. But think about it. Think about it. The whole deal, even dating and engagement. I mean, people do things while dating that they would never normally do in real life. I mean, when you're trying to attract that person, you shave, you use deodorant, you wear perfume, you open doors, you spend money you don't have to impress that person. You do things and you make promises in the engagement period that you really are unable to deliver, at least long term. Now, I've done dozens and dozens of weddings, and I'm amazed at the time and the expense that goes into a 30-minute ceremony. It's incredible. The bride disappears for days. Nobody even knows where she's at. She's getting a manicure, a pedicure, a facial, a makeover. She's getting her hair done. And when she walks down the aisle, everyone stands and they all look at her. Question, you know why they're looking at her? Because they know that she will never look that good again in her entire life. <laughs> they all know that, except the groom, right? He's thinking it's going to be like this all the time, right? And then they go on a honeymoon, right, where they sleep in all day. They spend the day, sleep in late, spend the day on the beach. They dance into the night. Then what happens? Fast forward about a year into the marriage. The bride gets out of bed. She walks into the kitchen where her Prince Charming is sitting at the table with a stained V-neck T-shirt, scratching his expanding belly and slurping his frosted flakes in the most annoying way possible. He looks up and sees her bride. She's got zip, zit cream on her forehead. She's got bleach on her upper lip, and she's wearing the most modest pajamas ever made, handed down to her by her great, 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 great grandmother. And then they both sit down with morning breath and begin to fight over finances like they had fought just the night before. Tim Keller teaches on this passage in Genesis 29, and he says, in the morning, it's always Leah. And there's some truth in that. You might marry Rachel, but in the morning, it's always Leah. It, it never turns out to our high expectations. Unrealistic expectations are a major cause of disappointment. And so, so is unconscious roles. Now, now, whether you know it or not, you enter into a marriage with some ideas about what a husband and wife should do, you know, the, uh, the jobs they should perform, the roles they should fulfill within a marriage. And you, you get these, these roles from your family of origin, from the family you grew up in. I mean, maybe you grew up in a home where, you know, where your dad made all the money, you know, that paid all the bills, and he never did a single thing around the house. Maybe you live in a home where, where your mom did all the cleaning and, and took care of the kids all the time. Or, or maybe you grew up in a home where your mom and dad, after dinner, like June and Ward Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver, they washed the dishes together while wearing a pearl necklace or something, right? Maybe you grew up in a home where your dad never touched a diaper his entire life, and he never got out one time in the middle of the night with a sick child. And so we have these expectations, even of these everyday tasks like making the bed, taking out the trash, handling the finances, doing taxes, putting the kids to bed, making dinner, cleaning up after dinner. We have these expectations. And so here's what's happened. Here's what happens. Uh, we start getting consumed about 
the way they're not fulfilling their end of the deal. Hey, wait a second. A husband, a wife, at least a good one, should be doing A, B, C, and D. You're not doing any of that. You're not keeping your end of the bargain. And then our focus becomes what they should be doing for us that they're not doing for us. But you know what Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but, and I added this, husbands, wives, in humility, consider others, consider your spouse better than yourself. Hey, what can I do to help? How do I change a diaper? <laughs> How do I boil water? <laughs> the third fact that leads to discouragement in marriage is unanticipated differences. I like what Rick Warren says this. Before marriage, opposites attract. And after marriage, opposites what? Attack, right? And I think there's some truth to that. You know, we're naturally drawn to people of the opposite sex who are different from us. And I think God in his wisdom kind of created us that way. Because the ultimate goal in your marriage, as far as God's concerned, is not your happiness. It's your holiness, right? His goal ultimately is not your happiness. It's your, it's your holiness. You see, our weaknesses are challenged through their strengths. However, it also creates some unique problems, unique challenges in marriage because we're so oftentimes different than the person we marry. Again, let, let's show of hands, see the differences. You know, it, in this room, how many couples do we have here where one is detailed, organized, and structured, and the other is more unorganized and spontaneous? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anything like that? How many couples do we have in this room where one is a morning person and one is not a morning person? Got any of those in this room? Okay. How many in this room would they say you have one couple who's quiet and reserved and the other is louder and more outgoing, okay? And the outgoing ones are the ones that got their hands up first, right? <laughs> I understand that there's differences. When it comes to communication, one spouse says, all we do is talk, right? That's all we do is communicate. The other says, it never even happens at all. When it comes to sex, one says, drop everything. The other says, drop dead, right? <laughs> there are differences in marriage so what happens when we get married is the husband points to his wife and says hey let's fix you and the wife points to the husband and says hey let's fix you and you can almost hear the announcer say let's get ready to rumble right because you're going to have problems however you know what it says in Ephesians 4 again I've applied it to marriage husbands and wives be humble and gentle with one another be patient with, with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of love. Make allowance for the stained v-neck, v-neck t-shirt and the slurping of the frosted flakes, whatever. Why? Out of love. A guy named Gary Thomas wrote a great book called Sacred Marriage. He says, if you want to become like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Being married forces you to face some character issues you never face otherwise. Any situation that calls on you to confront, calls on us to confront our selfishness has enormous spiritual value. Yes, perhaps the real purpose of marriage may not be happiness as much as it is holiness. You see, marriage is that perfect place to 
both discover and to see more fully our flaws and our shortcomings. Understand, marriage is the place where we 24-7, 365 days, year after year, get to learn how to really die to ourselves and put someone else first. It's where we learn how to actually and fully love our neighbor as ourselves. It's where we learn how to live out that incredible definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 on an everyday basis. I mean, marriage is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit forms its fruit in our lives. It's, it, it's where we develop our ability at using those relational building ingredients we talked about in week two. Acceptance, attention, adjustment, appreciation, affection, and amnesty. Bottom line, marriage is about a lifelong partnership where we help each other become the person that God wants us to be. You see, God designed marriage to help his image be formed in us. God designed marriage to help his image to be formed more fully in us. Get it? Good. And listen, when we embrace God's vision for marriage, we begin to look at our spouse and say, I, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of it. I, I, I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but look at you now. The fourth factor that leads to disappointment in marriage is unexpected challenges. Arthur John Orpork says sometimes he wants to sit down with couples who are ready to get married and say this. Do you have any idea what death, till death do us part, means? That means dirty dishes, bounce checks, and financial crisis. It means career struggles, time pressure, mortgage payments, and sickness. It means fighting over whether you're going to watch the World Wrestling Federation or the Disease of the Week movie. It means watching his hairline recede and his waistline advance. <laughs> it means watching the skin under her arm get loose and flabby. <laughs> Some of you are laughing too hard on that. You get in trouble later. It means navigating family issues and emotional problems and aging and challenges you can't even imagine right now. You see, almost every marriage is guaranteed to face a crisis. Some kind of storm, health issues, rebellious kids, financial stress, you know, the death of a, a parent, the, the aging and care of a parent. I mean, these are almost guaranteed to happen, and yet for some reason, we don't expect them. Some reason when we said in sickness and in health for richer or poor, we're like, hey, I'm kind of leaning towards that richer and health thing, Right? That's the way I'm going. I don't know about this poor or sickness, right? Yet God says in James, right? Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds in your marriage. Because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of your marriage, is your marriage being tested right now? Produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. So that you, so that your marriage may be mature and complete, not lacking 
in anything, right? Storms are coming, right? Man, it's just a part of it. You know, on August the 9th, 1980, when I stood before God and a group of people in Jacksonville, Florida, and I looked my bride-to-be, Jude, in the eye, and I said, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I had no idea that 15 years later we would be battling cancer together. I didn't know. I had no idea that that was going to happen. But what we did, we did what Hannah did. We talked about Hannah at Awesome Mom last week. In the face of this storm and this real problem, we cried out. We knew we couldn't. We knew God can. And we cried out to this God who can. And we trusted in his provision. You know, and we didn't define. And I'll tell you this. When you go through storms, do not define victory for God. You know, you put him in a box. You know, let him define victory. Right? Let him define victory. You know, and, and trust that whatever victory he gives you in the long term is the one you're going to celebrate. Amen? You're going to celebrate it. You know, and, and we explode it with praise for our God, and we still do to this day. And, and Judy's exploding with praise. I can't wait to get there in heaven. And, and she's been worshiping there for a long time, exploding praise for this God who loves her and cares about her. Right? But you're going you're gonna to face challenges in your marriage, right? Don't be surprised by that. But trust God in them and watch God use them to make your marriage more of what God wants it to be. The last factor is... An unforgiven past. Now this is where you're constantly bringing past mistakes into the relationship. So there, there's a lot of guilt and bitterness, a, a lot of accusation and defensiveness. You, you, you find out that he has this debt he never told you about, right? Or, or that she had this relationship that she never mentioned. Just this junk, right? Just this junk that you just won't let go of. And at every opportunity, you pull out that junk and you use it as a weapon to hurt each other. But yet Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 15, watch out that no bitterness takes root among you. Watch out that no bitterness takes root in your marriage. For as it springs up, it causes trouble. Sure does. Hurting many, definitely your kids, and their spiritual lives. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, so we identified some of the causes of disappointment in marriage, and my guess is that maybe you can relate to maybe one or two of them. So here's the question. What do we do about it? Well, most couples, you know what they do? Nothing. Nothing. They just settle. They, they either settle and accept a mediocre marriage. Let's just gut it out till we die, right? Hang on till Jesus comes, right? Or they grab a parachute and they jump out. Why? Because a good marriage takes work by both husband and wife. You see, just a wife working ain't going to make it happen, right? Or just a husband, it takes work on both the husband and the wife to make it happen. And, and, and I think there's just something in us that we think that somehow, we think that love and marriage just should be so easy, right? It should be natural. We shouldn't have to work for love. It should be effortless. After we fall in love, right, it should be easy. But the crazy thing is that we know that anything else worthwhile in life, we know that it takes effort, right? We know that it takes sacrifice to make it work. I love what Tim Keller in his awesome book, The Meaning of Marriage, says. Marriage is glorious, but hard. 
It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. (laughs) I believe all this. I so agree with them. And yet there's no relationship between human beings that is greater or more important than marriage. Amen. And I've taught on marriage many times, and now is about the time where, where I, I, would, I would typically pull out four or five helpful hints or suggestions from Scripture about how to improve your marriage. Nothing wrong with that, and I'll probably do it again sometime. However, this week as I started thinking about the people who will be here in this room, I, I, I didn't want this message today to turn into, you know, um, top, 10 tips for, top 10 tips for lasting love or six suggestions for rekindling romance. You see, sometimes we tend to treat the symptom without addressing the real cause. Now, now, there are all kinds of material you can read on marriage, right? Great books. You can read His Needs, Her Needs, right? Phenomenal book, right? You can read the book Love and Respect, a great book. You can read Tim Keller. I mean, this guy's just brilliant, right? Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. He's a little deep, but it's, it, it's, it's worth it. Or you can watch Dr. Phil, seriously. Dr. Phil has some good stuff on it, man. You can learn some good stuff from Dr. Phil. Not everything, but there's some good stuff. You may watch it and go, whoa, that kind of seems like me right there. You know, what would Dr. Phil say to me, right? Be the hero. And if you're not a reader, right now media. You know, all you gotta do, if you're not on it yet, fill out your connection card with your email handle. It'll send you a way to get on it. There's 28 video studies you know, by people like Francis Chan, Matt Chandler, right? Great guys, you know, um, Kyle Eidelman, um, Chip Ingram, right? Great guys who have marriage studies. There's hours and days of video for free that you can watch. Uh, uh, coming up, there's also going to be a, a, a marriage seminar, a, a spirit, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, right? Emotionallyhealthyspirituality.org. You can register. It's free, right? Um, you know, I got to meet Pete and Jerry are doing that. You know, emotional healthy spirituality is coming to Maple Grove. Emotional health is coming to Maple Grove. And, you know, I just got to be patient with, with getting it here. But you can sign up for this free webinar, and, and I guarantee it, it'll be worth your time. There's all kinds of places that you can go to get counsel and practical wisdom that you can implement into your marriage. However, don't just treat the symptom. Now, imagine you go to your doctor and you have lung cancer, and the doctor looks at your chart, and he hands you a bottle of cough syrup. And he says, you know what, take this cough syrup, you should start feeling better real soon. Sure enough, you take the cough syrup, and within a couple hours, you start feeling better. And you think, this doctor's a genius. And you continue to take the cough syrup. Meanwhile, the cancer is still eating away at your body. And like matter, I think there's some things that we could say, some helpful suggestions that might help things out and may work for a week or two, but we're just treating the symptom. Understand, I want to send you home today with more than cough syrup. And so I'm going to say something that you would expect me to say. And I'm going to say something that you would expect to hear in church. Uh, I'm going to say something that you would expect me to say as a pastor. But listen, I really do believe that at the heart of most disappointment in marriage, that it is a spiritual issue. I really believe God when he says through the psalmist in Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers do what? They build in vain. Man, they're working hard. 
They're doing all that they can. They're putting in sweat and time and energy. But guess what? It's all in vain. Understand, you can practice patience, you can communicate clearly, you can rekindle romance, and you can learn to resolve conflict in a healthy way, and I hope you do that, and that is all good. But until God is the center of your home, you will never have the kind of relationship that God, as your loving Father, wants you to have. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, wait a second, we got a good marriage, and we're not, we don't go to church all the time. You know we're a Christian, but I mean, he's not really the center, maybe like a little off-center, but he's not like completely out of the picture, but he's not really like the center. Listen, there's, I'm not saying you can't be happy. Now, I'm not even saying that you won't make it to your 50th wedding anniversary. But what I am saying is that there's a, there's a whole nother level out there for you. Listen, when God is truly the center and foundation of your home, when God is truly the center and foundation of your marriage, there's a whole nother level out there for you to experience. Because God is the key ingredient. God is the cornerstone. You know, Marriage and Divorce Magazine gives us some insight into this very thing. They give statistics that state that when a, when a husband and wife attend church regularly, right? Okay, define regularly, right? Well, what is regularly, right? Like most of the time, right? Like maybe you're out of town, but if you're in town and not dead, you're in church, right? You know, you, you and that these husband and wife, they read their Bible regularly. What do you mean regularly? Like most of the time, not that they're going to shoot themselves if they don't, if they miss a day, right? But they read the Bible a lot. They're in church. They're committed to the church, and they pray. You, you know what the divorce rate is? One in 1,105. That's pretty good, right, wouldn't you say, compared to the rest of the world? Now, why is that? Well, because God is the one who created marriage, and he's made it in such a way that it just doesn't work the way it should unless he's at the center. And yeah, I know when, I, when we talk about marriage, the challenge that comes with it is our tendency to first point the finger at our spouse. We say, you got a problem. <laughs> we say, he doesn't provide for me the way he used to. Right? Now, we, we, we say things like, she doesn't take care of herself the way she did at first. He's not as romantic as he used to be. He, he doesn't spend as much time at home as I want him to, or she doesn't have any interest in me sexually. We go through this list, and we point out, and we point out the other person, or we, or, or we have the tendency to point out ourselves and say, as a couple, well, there's just no more chemistry anymore. It's just not working the way it should. We just say, you know, we've lost that, Loving feeling, right? It's just gone, gone, gone. Listen. Listen. Here's what I'm saying. And it's something that we'll just, just keep coming back to in this series. If marriage isn't what you thought it would be, if you find yourself disappointed in this relationship, then ask yourself this question. Am I personally growing in an everyday, genuine Real relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you? And I'll say this. If you're not sure how to do that, that's one thing I at least try to do a lot. 
Yeah, I, that's one thing I want more than anything else. You know, I, I'm far from perfect at it. Believe me when I tell you. You know, but but I, I like to pursue God. I like to pursue my walk with God. You know, if you're not sure how to do that, you're like, well, I don't even know how to do that. Fill out a card, call me up, buy me Starbucks, right? <laughs> and take me to lunch and maybe I'll tell you, right? Because um, here's what I know. You show me two people. You show me a husband and wife who are, who are growing in their everyday relationship with God, living out their faith, and I will show you a marriage that is working. No, not perfect, but I'll show you a marriage that is working. I'll show you a marriage that you look at and you'll say, you know what, I like to have that marriage. I like to have that marriage. Why? Because God is at the center. Not perfect. You know, as I was thinking about this story this week, I started to wonder what it was like to be Leah. I mean, here's Leah, whose younger sister is much prettier than her. Here's Leah, who her dad's so desperate to get her married that he has to trick a guy to marry her. Here's Leah, whose husband never really wanted her, not from the beginning. If you continue to read about her story, all she wants, all she wants, she's consumed with making her marriage work. She's consumed with him meeting her expectations. She's consumed with him loving her. Verse 32 of chapter 29, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 33, she conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. He'll give me this one too. So she named him Simeon. What's going on? Years. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've born him three sons. So he was named Levi. Now the name Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for he has seen my misery, and her misery was that her husband didn't love her. You know, and she kept having children. Every time she had a child, she's like, now, finally, now he's going to notice me. Now he's going to care about me. Now he's going to become attached to me. Now he's going to want me. Now he's going to love me. But it never, ever happened. She's just consumed with her husband and his love. It never happens. But then in verse 35, she conceived again. She gave birth to a son. She said, this time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. If you look through the Bible, you'll see that the name Judah is used over a thousand times in the Bible. If you begin to read through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, the king line of Jesus, you read Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, who, by the way, his mom was Leah, the one with weak eyes, whose husband never really loved her. I understand when Leah finally stopped putting her expectation in her husband, when she finally stopped looking to her marriage for fulfillment, and she turned to God and said, you know what? I'm just going to praise the Lord. You know what? I got God. I got God. If I get you, that's okay. But if I don't, that's okay too, because God is so awesome and God is enough. And you see, that's when we see that God had an incredible plan for a marriage all along. I mean, Jesus, right? The lineage of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus comes from Leah. 
that is so awesome because he turned to the right place. Now, I don't know where you are today. Uh, Maybe you're disappointed in your marriage and maybe you have every reason to be. Maybe your spouse has left you disappointed and maybe he always will. But listen, there is a God who loves you and who will never, ever, ever disappoint you. So today, May 21st, 2017, instead of putting your hope, instead of putting your desires, instead of putting your dreams and your need for fulfillment and satisfaction in an earthly relationship, would you give all those things to God? Would you look for all those things in your heavenly Father? Would you look to him? Would you focus on that relationship first? 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 And just see how everything else comes together down the road?